Let us hear the word of our God, Romans 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. <clears throat> well, as we begin today, and as Joe just prayed here uh, toward the end about the different schools starting and so forth, uh, we literally, of course, have tens of thousands of educational institutions in our country. When you think of uh, grade schools, uh, even private schools or whatever, as well as colleges and universities, uh, and even add think tanks and things like this. We have all kinds of things in our culture here that speak about education, that speak about knowledge, that uh, um, trying to gain knowledge or something to that effect. There are claims, of course, of reason, of intelligence, diplomas are given, degrees are given, there are professional things and statuses and letters before and after your name and so on and so on and so on. But as we think about knowledge here, Paul says that actually, in a sense, none of us have any knowledge. And so let's hear what he has to say in this regard. Paul has developed the rather sober truth here in this section that all people receive God's wrath on a daily basis due to our refusal to acknowledge him and to worship him as he deserves. Instead of worshiping him as he deserves, we replace God with false gods. We mix truth with lies and error. And surely this is true for the unbeliever, or as Paul would say, the Gentile. But it is also true that the Jews did these things, and we all do, to varying degrees. These sins, of course, deserve eternal judgment. But Paul is here emphasizing the daily judgments that come our way, things that happen to us now. Now, as we saw last time, for some people, God punishes us for the sin of rejecting him by giving us over to sexual sins. For others, he punishes by giving us over to sexual perversions, and yet even for others, for both. Now, again, Paul here is not emphasizing the point. If you commit these things, there will be consequences. That is certainly true. And even at the end of verse 27, he addresses that to some degree. But his emphasis is that those who commit these things have already sinned in these other ways, and they're committing these sins as a consequence of of rejecting God, God giving them over to these sinful punishments. And so those who commit these sins 
are being judged by committing these sins. And then they're going to be judged for actually then committing those sins too. And so here is Paul's emphasis in Romans 1. Now, I have added to what Paul has said in this way. Paul doesn't make this point here. Certainly he does elsewhere. But when we find ourselves stuck in these sins, if we have committed these kinds of sins, we should see this as God's way of getting our attention. Yes, he is bringing wrath upon us for our sins, but we should use it as a call, a warning. Okay? I, am must, I, I must have rejected him in some way. I, I have some idol in my life. I have sinned in this way, and so let me go back to the problem and return to God in faith and repentance. Okay? Again, that's not Paul's emphasis here, but it's certainly a biblical truth, and I have added it. Uh, in this context. Well, maybe after last week, some of you were thinking, well, you know, I haven't committed these sins. And that's true. There are some of us here, surely, that have not fallen prey to sexual sins, either premarital or extramarital or homosexual or whatever. And that's true. However, of course, all of us have broken the seventh commandment in our hearts. We have lusted after someone inside. But we may not have acted upon it. We may not have looked at pornography or something like that. But before we can feel good about ourselves, Paul steps on all of our toes here, as it were, in verses 28 and following. And he gives us a list of sins that leave us all in shame and guilt. Well, let's start with his initial thought here, and that's in verse 28. And again, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. All right. Now, first of all, notice Paul's pattern. Uh, Back in verse 23 in particular, notice it says that we have exchanged God, the glory of the incorruptible God, for something else, right? An image made like corruptible man and so on. And so this exchange of God for idols then leads to a therefore, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to these sinful things. Then verse 25, does the same kind of thing. He says here in this verse about exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so, therefore, verse 26, he gives them over to sexual perversions. As we come here now to verse 28, Paul is doing a similar thing, but he doesn't word it exactly the same way. And so here, though worded differently, he is saying we have exchanged knowledge that comes from God for knowledge that comes from man. Again, he doesn't say it in that language But that's really his idea, right? We did not like to retain God in our knowledge. We didn't think it was important. It's not worthwhile. We'd rather have man knowledge than God knowledge. So again, doesn't use the word exchange, but it's really the same idea. Then he doesn't follow it with the word therefore, but note the next part, God gave them over to a debased mind. You could put a therefore in there. And so, again, he doesn't word it exactly the same, but it's really the same 
uh, mentality, the same idea. And so Paul is addressing those who don't want God in their knowledge. And so God then gives them over to, can you say, no knowledge, a mind that doesn't work right. And so there's exchange of God and truth and God knowledge to be replaced with idols and lies and man knowledge. Now, as I've said uh, for the last uh, couple sermons now, uh, in verses 24, 26, and 28, this verb to give over, um, it's the same in all three places. Your translations may vary the translation a little bit, as the New King James does here, but it's the same word, has the same meaning. And so, as I've said, God isn't just letting us go to do whatever we want. It is a deliberate, specific giving over to particular sins. So in light of what I just said a moment ago, God gives some of us over to the particular sin of sexual sin or sexual perversion, but he doesn't do that with everybody. And so it's very deliberate on God's part. It is his wrath being revealed. All right, now, in all three of these places here where this verb is found, Sinful humans are rejecting God, whether uh, replacing God with idols and false gods, or in this case, the idea that you don't need to know, don't need to have God to know things. Now, this is not something unique to Paul. This is not something unique to the New Testament. We see it right from the very beginning. When God put Adam in the garden, he said, there is a particular tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, don't eat from it, and if you do, you will surely die. Now, God was not trying to keep his, uh, his humanoids, if you will, ignorant and stupid. What God was saying to Adam and then to Eve and to the rest of us is, come to me for knowledge. I'm not going to keep you ignorant but come to me for knowledge. Don't go somewhere else. Well, obviously, Adam and Eve didn't listen to that, did they? You have God's word. Satan came with his word. And Adam and Eve put themselves above both. And they decided, man's knowledge. I am going to decide what is true and right. I am going to find knowledge on my own. And so they fell. And God gave them over to a mind that doesn't work right. As well as things that are unprofitable, right? Verses 29 and following, we see that immediately in the garden. Those kinds of sins and then as we go through Genesis. Okay? And so they were seeking to have knowledge without God. And so God judged them. But, you know, we see this kind of pattern throughout history. Uh, we could go back to the so-called beginning of philosophy. Um, and usually you'll hear people talk about this in ancient Greece with Thales and so forth. Uh, you could go back before that. But, okay, let's say we start with Thales and then Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and the Stoics and, and so on and so forth, right? Their whole approach is we're going to have knowledge without God. Okay? Now, obviously, they had false gods and many of them didn't even really believe in them. But, okay, the point is... They were trying to have knowledge, trying to reason their way throughout life, um, and yet they didn't acknowledge the true and living God in the process. 
Hey, I was reading just this morning how Nebuchadnezzar was doing that. Hey, and God sent him out into uh, the wilderness. They, he did not acknowledge God in his thinking. And so God gave him a debased mind. Well, this is what philosophy does. Hey, the intention is to think about life without God. But, you know, we see this in the church, too. Even after Christ, after the apostolic era, we see the early church fathers trying to have knowledge without God. Or at least they combine the scriptures with things that are not true, like Greek philosophy. And we see that with Origen. Hey, we've been talking about Aquinas in Sunday school. He did that with Aristotle and so forth. The Catholic and the Orthodox churches, they say the church tradition, the early church fathers, the Pope has as much authority for our knowledge as the scriptures, or even more, at least in practice, that's how it's often done. Aquinas, of course, came up with the five ways we can reason our way to God. In other words, we can have knowledge without God. We can reason to him. But that's saying we don't need God to know him. They use the language of natural revelation rather than general revelation because in, the, in their view, they say that we can have knowledge naturally. We don't need God to know things. But Paul is saying if, if that's your approach, then you're going to have a mind that doesn't work right. Since Immanuel Kant, especially in Western society, he said the knowledge of God is left to a realm that we cannot really know anything about. And so, all of life then, really, in his view, and all the philosophies that have been based on it, says that we can have knowledge without God. We don't need God to know things. Now, thankfully, the church opposed that, but if we look at the modern church today, um, it's not really that much different, is it? Okay. Science outranks scripture on the questions of the age of the earth. Woke churches openly ignore scripture in order to achieve heaven on earth. Okay. The apologetics movements that use reason without God are doing the same kinds of things. We, of course, live in a society today that refuses to allow God in public. Can't be in the classroom, can't be in the government or business or entertainment. Oh, yeah, they retain God in some kind of token gesture. We have a prayer before our congressional meetings. But it does absolutely nothing to impact how they think about policy for almost every one of them. Okay. Few actually seek to have God fully inform our everyday activities. For most people, and even for many professing Christians, we're just a bunch of practical atheists. Or to use Paul's terminology here, we didn't think it was important to retain God in our knowledge. We think we can do it without him. And so the Bible does not impact daily living for most people, even those in the church. But God's knowledge, Paul is indicating for us here, must direct all of our knowledge. 
Not just what does the book of Romans mean, not just what does the book of Titus mean, not just, well, what does the Bible say about supporting missionaries or local charities? It's not just, well, God exists or he's the big man upstairs. The Bible must govern everything that we do, what we eat, what we wear, how we sit or stand or walk, everything needs to be impacted by what the scripture teaches us. Now, there are some passages that speak to us very specifically about specific things. There are other parts of our lives where the Bible only speaks in principles. But nevertheless, the Bible governs and should govern everything about our lives. And so whether we're talking about public policy whether we're talking about education, since we're talking about knowledge here, right? It, it, should we have public schools? Should we have government schools? Hey, what about a private school? What about a Montessori school? It, it, it's going to impact all of these questions. What about the content? What about the subject matters that are studied? How should we teach 2 plus 2 equals 4? Does a Christian teach it differently than a non-Christian? If so, how? What does the scripture say about this? How should we discipline our children in school and at home? Which activities should a school be uh, including? What about sports? What about drama? What about art or music? But then even beyond that, what should our children be doing at home? What about video games? Is there a place for that? Or screen time, as we might say. Okay. Uh, what about DEI in business? Okay. Uh, is COVID treatment or the vaccine a biblical way of handling this? Okay. Which movies should we watch? Which jobs should we take? Okay. I can keep going here. Do you get the point? God's word must speak to every single one of these things. There is nothing that should be separated from the knowledge that is found in God's word. But when we live our lives without God, when we live in such a way that his word is not informing our every thought, every behavior, every word, then God is going to punish us by giving us over to a mind that doesn't work right. Again, this is certainly true of the unbeliever. But none of us, of course, does these things perfectly. Now, Paul is very deliberate about the terms that he gives to us here. In verse 28, when it says, he did not like to retain, you could translate it simply by saying, they did not think. Okay? Even as they did not think to retain God in their knowledge, God then gave them over to an unthinking mind. In both of those places, it's the same root word. He's very intentional. We've got to see this fitting together. So if we're not going to use our minds with God as the source of our knowledge, he's going to give us a mind that doesn't work right. Okay. Now, the New King James translates the second one as debased. That's a fair way of translating it. Simply, it means a worthless mind, a mind that is useless, a mind that has no value. 
okay? A mind that cannot work, a mind that cannot discern between right and wrong and good and evil. In fact, the word can be used in the context of passing a test. And so, if we think we can gain all this knowledge without God, we'll never pass the test. We'll constantly flunk. And so we cannot examine or prove anything or evaluate evidence or determine if something is logical and rational and reasonable. We cannot demonstrate truth or interpret correctly. And so you can also translate this word as disqualified. God gives us a mind that is disqualified. It it, it can't understand. Again, it's going to fail the test. And so therefore, as I've been saying since we started verse 18, every philosophy, every worldview, every religion is inherently trying to suppress the truth about God because the mind doesn't work right. It is an act of rebellion, yes, but it's also an act of a a mind that can't work properly. When you have false teaching in the church, when you have Christians who think and act like unbelievers, when you have Christian institutions that once taught the scriptures but now teach woke things or critical thought, like Yale or Harvard or whatever, when you have a nation such as ours, which at least was generally a Christian nation, now doing all it can to thumb its nose at God, we shouldn't be surprised at all because we have said, I don't need God. Taking prayer out of the schools was a very important step in this process. But of course, all along, the people who um, are doing this will say, oh, I'm being reasonable. Well, this is true. We've proved this. It is good. It is right. But in the end, it's the exact opposite. And so rational argumentation with an unbeliever who's suppressing the truth, how's it going to work? Because their mind isn't working right. The mind is corrupted by sin. We, of course, call this total depravity. All parts of us have been affected by sin, not just Our choice. We're not just unable to choose Christ, as Paul's going to say in chapter 3. No one seeks God. It's not just that our emotions are up and down and all around, which we all can attest to. It's not just that our bodies are failing and affected by sin, but so too is the mind. We cannot think straightly. And it's because every one of us here, beginning with Adam, have tried to live our lives without God in our thinking. And so it's no surprise then that we see foolish thinking, illogical arguments, reasoning that falls apart. And yet all along, people think they're being rational. But all this is evidence that God is punishing them for for ignoring him. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, wait a second. It seems like Paul is saying two things here in chapter one. And he is. On the one hand, he is saying that everyone's mind knows what is true. He told us that back in verses 18 and 19, right? Everyone knows that God exists. All you have to do is look at what God has made. 
And so the mind still works, and it can understand certain things, right? The unbeliever, right, they can do 2 plus 2 equals 4. The unbeliever can help us get to the moon. The unbeliever can help uh, and use the mind to, um, you know, build bridges or do medicine or whatever it is. The mind is still working. But it's not working properly because even the unbeliever doesn't really understand that two plus two equals four because he has not tried to understand it in the context of God. He's tried to understand it in the context of suppressing the truth. And, and so, yeah, on the one hand, everyone has a mind that works. On the other hand, we don't have a mind that works properly. And so Paul is not being contradictory here, but he is saying two things, and we need to understand how he is putting that together. Now, if you want to uh, pursue the, these, this question even further, uh, in my experience anyway, uh, John Frame's book, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, uh, may be the best one out there currently to address this issue. How can an unbeliever know and not know? At the same time, Paul here in verse 28 is emphasizing that we don't know. We have tried to live our lives without God. We've tried to use our minds in a way that doesn't go to God for knowledge. So he gives us to a mind that doesn't work right. It works in some ways, but not in other ways. Now, we do the same thing with our our spirits. We're alive, but we are dead spiritually. Both are true. It's a, a similar idea. All right, now, the other thing to mention here is this. Paul's point is to demonstrate how sinful we are. Everyone deserves judgment. That's his final conclusion in chapter 3, verse 20, right? Um, But I have been adding the point along the way. How do we fix this problem? If our tendency since Adam is to use our minds in ways that are are to suppress the truth about God, and if he has given us a mind that doesn't work right, how are we going to fix this? Well, God has to come and fix it, right? Just like we're dead in our sins and we cannot respond to Christ without the Spirit working within us, so in the same way, our mind's not going to think correctly unless God comes and he gives us a new mind. And so we must repent of our sins, we must trust in him, and we must be in the scriptures every day. As Paul's going to say in Romans 12, we must renew our minds. God starts that process, but in our sanctification, we must be renewing our minds on a daily basis. What does the scripture say? Study it, know it, understand it. How is it going to impact Everything that we do, it must inform all of our knowledge, simply. Well, this point alone is uh, worthy of far more than I'm saying here for these roughly 20 minutes or whatever it's been. But let me proceed now to Paul's next thought. Paul's next thought is the end of verse 28. 
to do those things which are not fitting. A corrupted mind leads to corrupting behavior. Our thoughts lead to our actions and our decisions. Sinful choices are an indication of a sinful mind. Mind, The mind and ethics go together. If we are blind to truth, our morals will be perverse. If our morals are perverse, it's an indication that we are blind to the truth. They go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. And so it's not surprising then that Paul says, okay, God gives these people over to a mind that doesn't work right. Well, that's also going to lead to behaviors that are just a mess. In verses 29 to 31, Paul lists 21 different sinful behaviors. And then you also have verse 32. These are actions that are not fitting. You might say they're not rational. They're not proper. They're not according to God's law. They are morally wrong. But all along, of course, we justify it. We think that they are good in some way or another. But instead of loving our neighbor, we use our minds, our debased minds, to justify hating our neighbor. And so whether we're talking about personal relations with one other person, or we're talking about a family, or a church, or a society, okay, all these things that Paul lists for us impact all of these relationships. Okay, if we are rejecting a relationship with God, then how can our relationships go right? Obviously, it goes together. And so Paul here is emphasizing that if you seek to have knowledge without God, if you replace God with idols, if you reject truth for a lie, then society is going to fall apart. Whether you're talking society as a whole, the society of a church, the society of a home, or the very smallest of societies, me and one other person, it's going to crumble in the end. So as we look at these next three verses, it's somewhat challenging to figure out what Paul has in mind in terms of why he puts the words where he does. And this has led commentators to do all kinds of gymnastics to try to put them in some kind of reasonable grouping. Um, Add to that that translations will translate the same word differently and, and so on. But let's follow the grouping that Paul gives. He actually gives us three groups of words here. And the first one begins with being filled, or you could translate it having been filled. And so that's the first group, and he has four things that go with that. Now, the New King James adds a fifth one, and we'll talk more about that next time. But he says, um, uh, God has given us over to debased mind to do things that are not fitting, and we are now filled with, having been filled with, all unrighteousness, New King James adds sexual morality, and then wickedness, covetousness, and maliciousness. Now, if you have another translation, you may have a different word for that, but uh, uh, these are the main ideas, and again, we'll talk about those specifically next time. The second grouping that Paul gives are five things. And notice he begins this one with full of. Okay, So having been filled and now full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and evil-mindedness. Again, your translation may translate those words a little differently there, but uh, here are five things we are full of. 
now. And then the third grouping that Paul gives are 12 things. And the New King James adds the words, they are, to help set it apart. And I, I think that's a fair way of doing it. And so we have having been filled, four things, full of, five things, and now they are 12 things. Whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. And then notice verse 31, they all begin with un, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving. Now the New King James adds unforgiving here, and then you have unmerciful. So if you leave out the two the New King James adds, we have 21 total. If you add them in, you have 23. Uh, but we'll talk about those words uh, briefly next time. Um, but uh, notice this un at the end, or your translation may say without or like merciless. It may translate it slightly differently. But in these three groupings, notice that some of the words are very general, right? Unrighteous is a very general term. Others are much more specific, okay? um, such as uh, disobedient to parents. Some of them emphasize relationships. Some of them emphasize pride. Some of them emphasize the tongue. Some of these terms are very similar in meaning uh, with overlap. And so I would agree with the, the commentators who would say, let's, let's not try to force Paul's words into a nice, strict categorization. Um, instead, Paul is simply trying to say hey, <clears throat> every sin in terms of relating to someone else is the result of having a debased mind. Okay? Paul is covering every kind of societal sin. These are ways where we hate our neighbor and break God's law. If we are not going to use our mind to understand things from God and his word, then we are going to end up antisocial with societal disintegration on the personal, family, church, and largely societal level. Now, one commentator said, basically what Paul is saying is that if we reject God for man, then we're going to have hell on earth. There will be hell forever, yes. But he's going to give us hell on earth before we ever get to hell. And that is his description here. Another commentator said it this way. Instead of the world that God has made, we now have this mutant, twisted world. And not just that the trees die hey, and we have hurricanes and tornadoes. But our relations with one another seen in, immediately in Genesis 3. Hey, it's just mutant. It's twisted. Another commentator went through and pointed out how all ten of the commandments are addressed in these verses. Especially in verses 18 to 28, we see commands 1 to 4, the fourth one being implied. Um, in verses 29 to 32, we see commands 5 through 10, though obviously the seventh commandment is in verses 24 to 27. But he's making a good point. If we're going to reject God for something else, something that he has made, then we're going to break all of his commands in the end. And that's what Paul is giving us here. And yet another com uh, commentator said it this way. When we seek to sit on the throne of God, 
when we seek to take his place and replace him with ourselves, we will and do rule as tyrants and we abuse others. And verses 29 to 31 spell that out very clearly. And so when we see a society with hatred toward our neighbor, this is an indication that God is judging us for turning away from him and finding our knowledge elsewhere. If we see a gossiping church, then this is an indication the church has done the same thing. If we see strife in our homes and people don't get along very well, this is an indication that we have replaced God knowledge with man knowledge. If we see violence taking place after the team wins the Super Bowl or whatever championship, this too is evidence of God's wrath on a society. When Lady Justice has no blindfold and the scales are weighted, this is evidence that God is judging us for turning away from him. When people do not value God in their thinking, it results in a worthless mind and worthless behavior. Here's Paul's point. And so let's heed what he is saying. And let us dive into the scriptures so that our minds can be renewed, so that we will think rightly and then live rightly to honor our God. Well, Lord really, next time we'll begin looking at this list of words and what Paul has for us here. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father and God, we thank you again for your word, a word that is hard for us to swallow because we don't want to think that we're as sinful as we really are. But Lord, we are thankful that you don't sugarcoat things. You don't allow us to continue thinking that we're these great people with great minds. We are thankful for these words, Lord, and, and we pray that you would help us to rightly understand this truth not to suppress it, not to reject it, not to replace it with our own mind's way of, of interpreting things, with what your word says. We pray, Lord, then that you would um, renew our minds, that you would give us a zeal to be in your word, that you would give us the ability to apply the specific and general principles of your word to everything that we do everything that we say, everything that we think. May we not be practical atheists, but truly um, think your thoughts after you. We pray for your mercies in this way. And Lord, as we uh, exist in our current society and we see evidence all around us, of how we as a society, as families, as churches, as individuals, how we have rejected God knowledge for man knowledge, you for idols and truth for lies. Lord, we pray that you would um, um, pour out your wrath as it is deserved. But we also pray that you would be merciful to your people and that you would use 
these judgments to get our attention, that we might return to you in faith and repentance. And so, Lord, we again are so thankful for what you teach us here and give us minds that can understand. We pray. We pray all this then in Jesus' name. Amen.